0: I'm Talmage Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with leading authors and public figures. Today, I'm interviewing Will Inboden, one of the rising historians in the United States today. He's the head of the Clement Center for National Security at the University of Texas about his new biography of Ronald Reagan, called *The Peacemaker*. Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Brink. On the program, not only was I interviewing Will Inboden, but also Dale Petrosky, who served as assistant press secretary during the Reagan presidency, such that the program allows us to explore Ronald Reagan not only from the historian biographer's point of view, but also from somebody who worked closely with him during his years as the president. Will N. book, The Peacemaker, came out on November 15, 2022, and got huge reviews in both the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. And we did the program on March 23, 2023. Enjoy.
1: say one thing and then Dale says something else, Dale's right. So anyway, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. not, not to entitlement to that question. Why title this book The Peacemaker? And I've even had a few critics say, you know, is Inboden trying to troll us? You know, we all know Reagan was a warmonger, not a peacemaker. No. Uh, this title is meant sincerely, and I think it captures what President Reagan's ultimate goal was, is he wanted peace in the world. And he wanted to be an instrument of making peace in the world. But he believed uh, that the greatest obstacle to peace in the world wasn't the American military, uh, wasn't the United States, but was Soviet communism. Uh, with its uh, with its aggression and its oppression and its destabilization uh, internationally, and and so his formula was peace through strength. You know, it's not peace through surrender. It's not peace through the United States. You don't want to give it up. It's it's peace through strength. And sometimes the um, you know his critics or even some of his fans who focus more on the hawkish and assertive parts of his foreign policy focus on the strength part of peace through strength. But I think the peace part is equally important. And so. Throughout his presidency and his letters and his diaries, he'd often reflect personally on his desire to be a, to be a peacemaker. Uh, and uh, the, the two particular places where I get the title both come from uh, the, uh, his, his final days, if you will. Uh, First, when he, um, after he dies, uh, his body is lying in state in the Capitol rotunda there in Washington, D.C. in 2004, and the line of mourners from across the United States is miles long. Like People are waiting days in the line to pay respects to this great president who had inspired the country who had brought the Cold War to a peaceful end. And of a sudden, Mikhail Gorbachev, the Soviet leader, Reagan's counterpart, makes a surprise appearance. Uh, He's escorted up to the front of the line, Um, he goes up and he he rubs the casket mournfully, Uh, he bows his head in respect, you can see this video on YouTube, it's a very inspiring and touching moment. And he's walking out, he's asked by a reporter, um, you know, why are you here? What did you make of uh, President Reagan? And Gorbachev says he was a great man who decided at the right moment to be a peacemaker. And so that title comes from Reagan's adversary turned partner for peace, Mikhail Gorbachev. The other place I get the title is from Reagan's final words in public life on foreign policy. This is shortly, it's the last speech he gives. Uh, in public life before he's diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and retreats from the uh, the, world, the world stage. Um, and it's December of 1992. Uh, he's been out of office for four years at this point. He travels to Oxford uh, University to give an address to the Oxford Union. And uh, he is, is kind of surveying the peaceful end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the spread of freedom. And many people expected that this would be a victory lap of sorts. He'll kind of declare victory and, and talk about his triumphant policies, but... But instead he is worried about what the future of the world might hold. He worries about America's retreat from the the international leadership. He worries about the return of ethnic conflict and terrorism and other things like that. And then he, I'll just read the last last words of his speech, which in some ways are his, uh, I think his his final words to all of us. Uh, He says this, um, the work of freedom is never done, and the task of the peacemaker is never complete. That's why I told that book. Beautiful. Now, all
0: you wonderful chamber people know that Dale Petrosky is probably the greatest relationship builder in the history of the world. (laughs) But while he was in the Reagan White House, one of the important relationships that he built was with Nancy Reagan, a very key figure. So when Nancy Reagan passed away, Dale told me there had been 88 people working in the White House. Only two got invited to Nancy's funeral. Dale was one of the two. In the press office. office. In the press office. Through those eight years. Okay. So anyway... Two out of 88, Dale gets picked for Nancy Reagan's funeral. So, Dale, in the context of the peacemaker, uh, talk about what your perception of Nancy Reagan's influence in kind of getting him to shift directions uh, in the, toward being a peacemaker. First of all, I just have such respect for Will Imboden
2: for, and, and the historians of his stature for putting all these pieces together of a life and what's going on in the country and in the world so that we all have in one volume uh, a great picture of what it really was like. And uh, I I just, uh, congratulations on a wonderful book, and uh, it's a great um, contribution to our history, so thank you. Uh, I would say that um, anyone who underestimates Nancy Reagan and her role in Ronald Reagan's life um, uh, doesn't really know Ronald Reagan very well. Uh, Ronald Reagan would never have been governor of California. He never would have been president of the United States. He never would have had such a successful presidency. And he would have never gone to visit and and meet with Gorbachev at that moment in history were it not for for Nancy Reagan. Uh, She was his closest confidant. Uh, She believed in him more than he believed in himself. He often says that my life started the day I met Nancy, and I believe that because she just filled his life with happiness, and she protected him, you know, he had a pretty tough childhood, and, uh, and he was wary of people, and, uh, and she found in he found in her a real source of comfort and, and a confidant, and uh, he would stand on stage, and he was such a great speech maker, that uh, he would look out at the audience, he was filled with confidence. And he would say, they love me. I mean, he really wouldn't say that. He was a pretty humble guy. But he would would say, I'm doing well. And Nancy would be sitting behind him saying, she's no good. She wants something out of us. Uh, You know, we can trust that person. She had a great antenna for people. She did. And she knew who was there to serve the president and the purposes of the president, Mrs. Reagan, and the country, and who was there for their own purposes. And uh, Nancy Reagan is a
0: very underestimated woman in American history. In fact, one of my favorite quotes, uh, one of Reagan's best buddies from his Hollywood days was Jimmy Stewart. And Jimmy Stewart said that if Reagan had met Nancy Reagan earlier in his life, he would have won an Oscar. (laughs) All right, so this book uh, is obviously, per the title, the subtitle, focused primarily on Reagan's foreign policy. And so, in a nutshell, uh, Will, give us kind of an overview on on what that policy was, the peace through strength that you mentioned, what his his goal was
1: uh, from day one of of his presidency. Sure. So, uh, some of you, without commenting on anyone's age in the room, I'm taking a guess that some of you here were alive during the Cold War. may remember the Reagan administration. (laughs) I was myself. Others of you probably were born afterwards. Uh, and this is where I have the advantage, I suppose, of my day job being a college professor down at UT um, and you know, teaching a generation of students who were born uh, after the Cold War ended, after Reagan's presidency ended, even after, after, he, after he died. And so I'll, I'll try to uh, make my uh, answer here accessible to those who remember it and those uh, for whom it is uh, just in history. When Reagan took office, the overriding challenge he faced, the United States faced, was the threat of Soviet communism. At that point, the Cold War had been going for almost four decades, uh, you know, complicated origins of it, but uh, after World War II ends, uh, the United States and the Soviet Union are the two dominant superpowers in the world, and they have very different visions for how their country should work and how the world should work. Soviet communism is based on a uh, planned command economy, um, on uh, state-sanctioned atheism, on uh, on a totalitarian dictatorship, uh, and on uh, aggression and promoting that communism around the world, and this is a key thing to understand. It's not just inside the Soviet Union, but this is why the Soviets took over Central and Eastern Europe, why they built the Berlin Wall, uh, why they put up the Iron Curtain, and why they supported uh, the spread of communism in Africa and Latin America and Asia. United States, of course, is a democracy. We have a, a free market economy. And, you know, we believe in, in those values for ourselves, and we want to support those values elsewhere in the world. So those are the origins of the Cold War. Uh, and uh, the Cold War is a massive military standoff, too. The Soviets built the largest, most powerful conventional army in the world, and they also had the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. To give you a sense of scale, like, you know, we're, we're all concerned here about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and some of these nuclear threats that Putin's been making. Russia right now has about 1500, nuclear warheads. that's a lot any one of those can ruin your day right any one of those is bad news. When Reagan took office the Soviet Union had 40,000 nuclear warheads right Tw- over 20, 20 times as many all targeted at the United States so it's an <laughs> absolutely terrifying uh, terrifying standoff. every previous president before Reagan, uh, Democrats and Republicans, from Harry Truman on up through Jimmy Carter, uh, had tried to stop further Soviet expansion. Uh, they, the, the doctrine is called containment. Let's keep communism where it is right now. Let's not let it go any further. They had no notion that you could actually uh, win the Cold War. It was, it was a problem to be managed. The Soviet Union had been around for 70 years at that point, and the assumption is that it'll be around for at least another century more. It may not have the most efficient economy, but they control their people, and they're, they're, and they're, and they're making this work. And so the United States, our challenge is just manage this and keep it from getting worse. And Reagan takes office, and he has a very different theory of the case. Uh, he thinks, he it, it puts this um, in the 1970s, he said, my theory of the case on the Cold War is we win, they lose. And it's simple and it's punchy, but within that, there's actually a very profound, complex new strategic calculation. He actually believed that the Soviet Union was vulnerable and that with more pressure, uh, it could be collapsed, that it could actually be defeated, uh, that the free world could win this contest and that the communist world could lose it. But he's also very committed to keeping the Cold War cold. He's terrified, rightly, of nuclear war. He knows that you know any one of those forty thousand bombs could destroy the United States, and one of ours could you know kill millions or hundreds of millions of, of Soviet people. And so, hence, you know, part of the uh, one of the reasons for the title of my book, "The Peacemakers." He's very committed to a peaceful victory in, the, in this conflict. Uh, and so, that is the main challenge he inherits, and that's the new approach he takes. We can you know, talk a little more about the, the details on it. But that's the, that's the that, that's the big picture. Uh, strategic revolution, and uh, key principles of his foreign policy.
0: Right. Dale, you became uh, Assistant Press Secretary early in the second term? Yes. uh, And first term, Dale was on Capitol Hill, so obviously very mindful of what was going on during Reagan's presidency, but uh, taking from what Will just said and and the plan, and particularly how it materialized in the second term, the key factor was obviously we had Gorbachev. Uh, His predecessors looked at life differently, looked at Soviet Union's role in the world differently. So thinking about, you know, the, the, the press secretary and the, and the press and, the, and how you were presenting things, uh, give us your perspective on the importance of Gorbachev's role in, in bringing this foreign policy vision uh, into effect. You know, the
2: Soviets had a leader for a long time named Brezhnev, Leonid Brezhnev. And then from Brezhnev, they had a succession of, um, they had Andropov, Chernyenko, uh, two, uh, two uh, they were all older leaders in the Soviet Union. That's the way leadership was in the Soviet Union. These, these guys were in their 70s, 80s. I guess that's kind of what we have right now. But but, really, for, the, for that period, they were older type leaders. So Brezhnev dies, and I think it was Dropov was next. He died after about a year. Chernyenko died after about a year. And the President, kept, they said, uh, why, why, "Why won't you deal with the Soviets?" He said, "They keep dying on me." Uh, but, but, but then Gorbachev comes in. Gorbachev's fifty-two years old. I mean, he's a new type of leader. He's a younger leader. He's a generation younger than the others. He's a generation younger than the president, frankly. And um, and, and I'm going to get back to Nancy Reagan here for a minute. And I, a lot of the the, um, the hawks on, in in the administration. Uh, you know did not want President Reagan to deal with Gorbachev. They thought nothing's changed, just a different leader. And um, Mrs. Reagan, you know, I think persuaded him to say, now's the time. You know, we've got him where we want him, basically, we built a, We've made them build up their their arsenal at the expense of the rest of their economy. They're weakened right now. They have a new leader who seems to want to, to talk about democracy, Blasnost, perestroika, and all those terms. And, and she is the one who whispered in his ear, now's the time. And I'll never forget the day in the White House when we were told that we are going to Geneva in November of 1986. That was the first summit. Yeah. I, like Will said, I, I grew up with the Cold War, and I assumed that the Cold War was going to be there the rest of my life. I mean, it was never going away. That's just the way the world was. It was east against west. And, um, and I'll never forget when Larry Speaks, who was my boss, the press secretary, said, we're going to Geneva. The president's going to meet with Gorbachev. I was like, whoa. I mean, that was a big moment. And, you know, as big a moment as that was, we never could have imagined that it was about to change the world. We thought it was an opening meeting where maybe they could start to break bread and get to know each other a little bit. we really didn't know what was about to unfold in the next couple
0: of years. Well, every great book has a certain element of tension in it, and this book uh, is no exception to that rule. And with all this great vision, all these great convictions, all this eloquent capacity to be a great speechmaker, in fact, Reagan was not a good administrator. And there are all kinds of turf battles, in particular within his cabinet, between Weinberger uh, on the one hand and Schultz on the other. So, so, Will, give your perspective, having... Not only research what was going on vis-a-vis uh, the Soviet negotiations and relationship, but just within the White House to, to get to a point where they could actually function.
1: Sure, I certainly have some thoughts on this, but also we'll be eager to hear Dale's reflections. Having lived through some of this, so um, so the Reagan, uh, the Reagan, every White House is chaotic and fractious and has its feuds and it's leaking. And I worked in the Bush White House; it was honored to do that, and we, we had that too. Every administration does, right? Um, So, but the Reagan White House, I think it's safe to say, had more of that than most. Part of that is because of an understandable reason that the stakes were really high, right? It's quite literally the fate of the world is in the hands of decisions the United States and Soviets are making. And President Reagan attracted some very smart, capable, experienced, competent, strong-willed advisors and cabinet secretaries. It's a formidable group of people. And they all have strong convictions about what should be done. And they're all pretty loyal to him, but they often differ with each other. And so when you've got strong, capable, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, fierce-minded people and really high stakes, some amount of tension and uh, disputes are, are going to be natural when it comes to the territory. But President Reagan, for all of his strengths as a strategic visionary, as a great communicator, as a really decent human being, uh, was just not very uh, attentive to management, and he doesn't like personal conflict. Now, you got to pause for a second there. I don't even mean that as a criticism. If you like personal conflict, there's something wrong with you, right? Okay? Is. But, you know, and if you are in management or leadership positions, you know, if, if your staff is fighting with each other, that kind of stuff, no one likes dealing with that, right? It's, it's not fun. And Reagan just you know was even less comfortable with that than than, than most people, um, and so uh, and so that's why you have this you know fiercely divided White House. He was sometimes able to joke about it. He'd say, uh, "My White House is, is so confused and divided that the right hand doesn't know what the far right hand is doing." So, <laughs> and, then, and then, yeah, but there's an element of truth in that because you know you had some of the more moderate ones and some of the more conservative ones and some of the pretty hard young know, can you know some of the pretty hard right ones too, right? Um, uh, however. Uh, how is it that even with this, uh, this fractious divided staff that um he's able to, to, to achieve such successful outcomes of a peaceful victory in the Cold War. And I think it's because uh, at, at some key moments, uh, President Reagan himself would step in and be very decisive about this is what we're going to do. Often that meant siding more with George Shultz, the Secretary of State in the second term, uh, listening to the, the, the advice and counsel of his you know very skilled and very loyal First Lady, obviously, uh, and pursuing a, a diplomatic path at some, at some key junctures. And so uh, even if he didn't like the conflict at times, would it really matter he would step in and say this is where we're going? But if you want to understand some of the downsides of the administration, the Iran-Contra scandal, the Marine barracks bombing in Beirut in 83, um, some of those stem from these uh, staff divisions and, uh, and policy divisions <coughs> and him not being, having a firm hand on, on the tiller. One other thing I'll say, by the way, is this is why Jim Baker was such an essential part of the team and a great chief of staff in that first term, is he um, deferred to Reagan on the strategic vision, and he spent his time making the trains run on time and cracking heads when it needed to happen. Mm-hmm.
0: So, Dale, as a a press secretary, what was your perspective on dealing with all this internal conflict and and how somehow, someway, with the exception of Iran-Contra, the the train stayed on the tracks? Well, first of all, I'll say that Will described it very, very well. I mean,
2: that was was perfect. Uh, um, There are a lot of of big personalities uh, in cabinet positions, key cabinet positions, a lot of big personalities in the White House. Uh, and, and yet, um, I would say this. I'd make a division between the first term and the second term. The first term, James A. Baker was the chief of staff. The, to me, the greatest public servant of the last 50 years. I think Jim Baker's the greatest public servant of the last 50 years. Chief, White House chief of staff, treasury secretary, secretary of state. I mean, just a statesman. And in that first term, he was the chief of staff. He was down and dirty in the White House, getting it done and keeping people away from each other, putting people together when they needed to be. And he's just a skilled, a skilled manager. Um, in the second term, you may remember this, uh, <coughs> Secretary Baker, Chief of Staff Baker, went over to become Secretary Baker at Treasury and Secretary of Treasury Regan came to the White House to be Chief of Staff. They swiveled. They swapped jobs. It was a great fit on one hand when Baker going over there, not a great fit with Regan coming back over to the White House. Regan was, was a Marine through and through, uh, a very tough-minded guy who had been CEO of Merrill Lynch in New York. And when he said what he said and went, wherever he was, like, I want this done, he's now a staff guy. And he was not meant to be a staff guy. And, and I would say that Baker kept things together, a, and I would say this too, and I, I served in the second term. The first, ter- the first term team was more talented than the second term team, which is kind of typical in a White House. And so Baker had a lot bigger job of keeping everybody together and getting wins for the president. You got to remember this: when the president, President, won a big against President Carter in 1980, and then, uh, and then in 1982, two years later, his poll ratings were in the ditch. I mean, he was about 30 uh, percent popularity in this country in 1982. We lost 26 seats in the House that year. And uh, and really, nobody thought he was going to win re-election in 84. And two years later, he won 49 out of 50 states. Okay, When I showed up in the White House a couple of months later, his popularity ratings were 75%. That's Jim Baker. Okay, I, I believe that's a lot of that's, of course, Ronald Reagan. But it's also Jim Baker and the skill that he had in managing that White House, and uh, and I'll say one other thing, Talmadge. Um, I believe. So you say, how can a White House function with all this stuff? The president was very clear on what his goals were. We all knew what the goals were. Okay, so you didn't you didn't need to be told what the goals were. You knew what the goals were, right? Freedom around the world, anti-Soviet Union, freedom around the world, right? Pro-life, right? Uh, strong law enforcement, and get get the government off your back. You know, low economy going. Low taxes, reasonable regulations, let's get the government off the back and let, let the American people take this economy to new heights. And and so everybody got the deal. And everybody loved President Reagan. So they wanted to do what was gonna make him successful. That's how that White House functioned.
1: Yep. Can I add two quick things on the topic? So uh, just a couple of foot stomps on, on Dale's good points there. Um, the title of that, that top White House position is White House Chief of Staff. Mm-hmm. And Baker, uh, later reflecting on how Don Regan had not done so good in that job, whereas Baker had, Baker said, mm-hmm. the problem with Don is he put the emphasis on the chief part, but you really got to <laughs> put the emphasis on the staff part. And Baker, <laughs> yeah, Baker really understood that. The other one, uh, my uh, another colorful anecdote is uh, one of Don Regan's many failings as chief of staff is he did not appreciate the importance of the first lady and of cultivating a good relationship with her where his baker had. And at one point when Regan is really flailing in the job and being too uh, uh, imperialistic and alienating everybody... First Lady was on the phone with him, trying to explain something to him, trying to talk to him about the president's schedule and, and an important event coming up. And Regan got so, Chief of Staff Regan got so mad at her, he just hung up the phone. He hung up on the First Lady. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <You're> right. Okay. <laughs> Jim Baker, now the Secretary of Treasury, previously to in the job, hears about this the next day from a friend, and he says, wait a minute, Don hung up on the First Lady? That's not a firing offense. That's a hanging offense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, obviously, during the second term, when he really kicks in as a peacemaker and we have these four summits, it's ultimately about negotiation. So, Will, give us your perspective on the effectiveness of Reagan as a negotiator in these four important summits and and what he did to to get to
1: where the negotiations went. So this is a really big theme of my book, and it's one of the fun revelations of my research, is Reagan was a master negotiator. He took that part of the job of being the commander-in-chief, the chief executive, the diplomat-in-chief, you know, the president, very seriously. And if you understand his background, it makes sense. So in his Hollywood days, he was also president of the Screen Actors Guild, you know, as a union member. And in that role, he did a lot of negotiations with some very difficult, very powerful Hollywood studio chiefs. And he was very successful at that. Uh, And he realized that he had a knack for that. And I think there's a couple reasons why. Uh, The first is he has that essential attribute of a negotiator, which is he was able to see the world through the eyes of the person you're sitting across from, right? He certainly knew what he wanted to get and what he was representing, but he also thought if we're going to get a deal, and a good deal, I've got to understand what the the guy across the table is thinking about and what the world looks like to him. And so he would study his counterparts very carefully. And before his first summit meeting with Gorbachev in, in Geneva that Dale was talking about, President Reagan spent weeks reading hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of briefing memos and history of the Soviet Union and, and um, biographical sketches on Gorbachev. And then he he wrote out uh, by hand about 10 pages single spaced on a legal pad, his own reflections on what does the world look like from the Kremlin? What does the world look like to Gorbachev? Uh, and it wasn't that he was trying to take Gorbachev's side, we he thought, I can't negotiate with this guy if I don't know what's really going on inside his head. Um, And then the other uh, part of his skill as a negotiator is he had that uh, very hard to coach kind of intuition about where do I hold really firm on a big principle and then where do I compromise? Because you got to do both. If you're going to compromise on everything, then you lose already, right? Um, but if you're going to be so dogmatic and only hold on that it's got to be this or nothing else, then there's nothing to negotiate for. And and he would be very clear on certain principles, holding on to the Strategic Defense Initiative, uh, and eliminating all intermediate range nuclear missiles, getting all Soviet troops out of Afghanistan, things like that. But then on other parts, was really willing to compromise uh, and, and meet Gorbachev halfway. And so it was those two those two attributes. And you know, a fun part of researching this book is we now have the transcripts of all of his summit meetings with Gorbachev. So word by word, you know, there's a note taker in there taking these down as fast as they can word by word. And so you can read these, read the back and forth between them almost like you're in the room. And one of my several takeaways is, wow, this guy was just a master negotiator. You know, I would not want to be across the table from him, and because he had that more amiable public persona and liked to be underestimated, you know, Gorbachev made the mistake of underestimating him at first. And after that first Geneva summit, Gorbachev was like, "Wow, this guy's this guy's formidable."
0: Now so. talk about you know the office of the press secretary. How do you decide what to tell the world as 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 the media voice about this? The state of negotiations, what was your process for that?
2: You know, I brought a few things here. I, uh, <laughs> it's a funny thing, when I was in that role, it was such a fast-paced role that uh, I'd come home from trip after trip after trip, and I had a big box in the garage, and I'd throw my credentials in. I'd throw the press, uh, the things from the trip in that box thinking, some year, way down the road, I'm going to look at that stuff. And about six months ago, I finally looked at it here 35 years later. But I was so happy I kept stuff because, uh, you know, I didn't even remember keeping it, to be honest with you. And so here, I'll show you just a couple things here. It's kind of fun. This is the this is the press briefing book we prepared for the press on the trip to Reykjavik in Iceland. And in it, will you hold that for me? For sure, of course, okay. yes. So in it was... Um, so, so, so um, you know, basic, basic uh, itinerary. Here's a little bit about Iceland so that the, the uh, media could report on Iceland as a country. Um, here's um, the history of U.S.-Soviet summits through the years. So the press had everything they needed to write their stories. But this, this is what a briefing book would look like for the press from the press office before we went on a trip. And then I kept a couple of other things here. It's fun. Um, at the first meeting in, in um, Geneva, these were around town. And this is uh, the president and Gorbachev with the two flags and a stamp on it. So you had a stamp. You were there on, on November thirteenth, nineteen eighty-five. Uh, eighty-five. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then. One of our, one of the guys who worked in our press office uh, got a, a, a Soviet uh, chocolate bar. And this is the wrapping from the Soviet chocolate bar. Oh, wow. It's beautiful. It's so ornate and beautiful. And it's got gold lettering on it and so forth. And he gave each one of us one of these to, for, for our collections. I actually, my good friend, Victoria Parshakova, who's from Moscow, uh, she, we play tennis on Saturdays. And she, uh, I showed this to her and she uh, She actually could read it, you know. It was just kind of funny. So then um, I kept this. This is a a, a, a Time magazine, so far so good. That was after the first summit. So just a couple of things that were in those boxes that uh, I thought I'd bring along. Oh, and I had one more thing here. uh, Such an unsophisticated... uh, staff ID badge. I mean, think about these today versus back then. There's not much to this, right? No barcode to scan. No barcode to (laughs) scan. But uh, anyway, it was that too. Anyway, sorry to to derail the conversation. No, no, no. I
0: I thought you'd enjoy that. Absolutely. Now, we all know that before he got into politics, Reagan was an actor. Uh, And throughout his political career, he, he kept making note of how being an actor actually helped him as a performer, uh, to play the many roles that a president has to play. Uh, so, Will, uh, there's a phrase, you use the book, he went from stagecraft, or he used his stagecraft to enhance statecraft and to perform, quote, both the director and as the lead actor in the Cold War drama. So, so explore that. How he used those acting skills in the context of being the world leader?
1: Sure. Uh- this is where, at the time, you know, a number of you are old enough to remember Reagan's critics would deride him. Ah, he's just a B movie actor, right? Uh, and yeah, he had never did win an Oscar. Maybe if he had met Nancy earlier, he would have. Um, uh, but it was it was a uh, condescending d- dismissal that you know there's no substance to him. That this is just uh, he's just playing a part, and all he does is read his lines on the cue cards that his staff write for him, and he's just he's just kind of a, a proper mannequin up there. I actually think a more uh, fair-minded and objective reading shows a much more favorable connection between his acting skills and acting background and his role as Commander-in-Chief. And I'll just give you a, a couple of top lines in this. First he understood that um, even if he comes up with the most uh, sophisticated and effective new strategy and policies in the in the Cold War for the United States, they won't work if he can't get the American people and the peoples of our allied uh, allied nations to support him. Right? You've got we're a democracy, right? Uh, you know, we our, our leaders are going to be only as effective as the support that the voters give them. Um, and and so this is why he paid very careful attention to the content of his speeches. He's very involved, he personally involved in writing his speeches, but also how they're delivered and what the setting is, because it's part of his uh, I think respect for the voters that he wants to take the voters and their concerns and values seriously, and to communicate to them this is what i 'm trying to do, and this is what it means and this is what it will what it will look like and so that 's the first part of him as an actor is a very effective communicator, not just because it makes him or others feel good because that 's an essential part of maintaining public support for some pretty controversial uh, policies but the second uh, is an insight I got from one of his speech writers who said. You've got to understand because President Reagan had that background as an actor, he know he knows that for every party played in Hollywood, there's a script, right? Uh, and and he understood that if you know halfway through the production people aren't happy with how things are going, you can rewrite the script to have a better ending. So President Reagan inherited a certain script in the Cold War, the one I told you about earlier, which is that the Cold War has been with us forever and it's gonna be with us forever, and every president's job is just to manage it and keep it from getting worse. And he he decided to rewrite that. He wanted to actually rewrite the script to have a better ending, where the Soviet Union collapses and the world is spared nuclear war and the Cold War ends, ends peacefully. Um, and, uh, and Because he you know, rejected that conventional wisdom and believed in the possibility of a, of a better outcome, I think some of that comes from his, his acting background, so that's why I refer to him as both uh, the director and the, the, main, the, main, the lead actor in that great Cold War drama. Dale, do you
0: wanna expand upon that? You went to ten weekends at Camp David and reading Will's book as well as other Reagan continued to just love movies. Yeah. And and and, and took some of his great lines through the years actually from movies. Yeah. Like I, I bought this mic at the New Hampshire primary when he wiped out Bush. Yeah. Uh, so, so expand upon that from your personal experience, how this acting component to his personality played out. I'd like to add something that Will
2: said, and I think, I think you're spot on on this, but I, I um, he, he, he used to love to use this line. <clears throat> they would dismiss him as just to be actor. He'd say, I don't know how you could do this job if you weren't an actor. <laughs> how can you be president if you're not an actor, right? But the other thing that was, uh, I'll tell you one story from Geneva. This is the first time he was going to meet Gorbachev. And he's huddled with uh, Secretary Schultz, and Secretary Weinberger, and, and his national security advisor in the House. And they flip a coin to see who's going to receive who. It's like a football game. And and the first day, we won the toss. so The president was going to receive Gorbachev. Gorbachev was going to drive up in his limousine. The president was going to come out and greet him. My good friend, Jim Kuhn, who... who uh, still a great friend, was his personal assistant. He was the president's personal assistant. He was the first one to see him in the morning, the last one to say goodbye to him at night, and he'd see him again the next morning. He took care of everything for him. He knew him. He knew him really well. And so, um, it's about a 50 degree day, this first day. And the president's got an overcoat that he's going to wear out to greet Gorbachev. And, um, and, and all the policy guys, you know, they're not focused on the picture, the first picture of Gorbachev and Reagan, mm-hmm. which is going to be the big picture, yeah, right? Yeah, the whole world's going to see it. The whole world's going to see it, because the Soviet leader and American president hadn't met in decades, right? It's the first time in decades they've met. And so <clears throat> so my buddy, Jim Kuhn, who was a former press advance man, said, uh, Mr. President, you're not going to wear that coat out there, are you? And he said, well, yeah. He says, I wouldn't. He said... Why not? He says, says, look, you don't need a coat out there. So the president takes his coat off. And, and, you know, Schultz and those guys are saying, Mr. President, put your coat on. It's cold out there. Jimmy says, don't do it, Mr. President. He he throws his coat down. He walks out. He looks like a million bucks. First of all, Reagan's about 6'2", 6'3". Gorbachev pulls around in the Zill limousine. He's got an overcoat on, a scarf on, a fedora. He's about a foot shorter than President Reagan. And Reagan just towered over him. And the picture was of this benevolent American president, you know, looking like a million bucks, and this befuddled little Soviet leader. Uh, he just, it, it was a mismatch at yeah. that point. And, and really it comes down to those human moments when Jimmy said
1: to him, Mr. President, you don't need that coat. And, and, that, and that was the picture on Time Magazine, the cover you just showed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That really captured it. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, let's let's show that again. Yeah.
2: Yeah. There Here you are. are. There's Gorbachev in his coat
1: and his scarf, holding his hat, and the president looking like a million bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And even though the president was 20 years older, he looked 20 years younger. Right. <clears throat> I mean, he appeared hale, hearty, energetic. And
0: yeah, oh, yeah. yeah I mean, if you study presidential history, of course. Reagan's vice president was George Herbert Walker Bush, who succeeded him, and Reagan was a very successful two-term president. Bush, 41, was a one-term president. One well, of the biggest differences was Reagan understood how important it was to present, to perform in those magical moments when the whole world was watching. Bush never got that, never made it a priority to be a great presenter, and, and that, you know, is tied into to the acting, but when you get into this history and who's making the impact on the nation and on the world, it's the person who can really uh, hit the airwaves, get the magazine cover photos or whatever it is in the internet these days, and shine, and Bush never got that. Uh, let's talk now about really the most important part of the negotiations, and that was the Strategic Defense Initiative, which Teddy Kennedy called Star Wars, which really was the game changer. So we'll talk about that. And, and, and what it was and why it was such a game changer.
1: So this is uh, one of the most controversial, but I think important parts of the, the Reagan national security legacy. And, uh, and I'll, I'll get to this, the importance of it, uh, just that, that program in a second, but to give the context. So uh, when Reagan takes office, um, the American defense budget had been cut for years. After the Vietnam War and we lost that war and then the recession and Watergate, uh, all through the 1970s, the American military was underfunded, demoralized, um, and, and really slipping into a, a, a second second-rate military. Meanwhile, the Soviets have been pouring more and more of their money into their military. And so the, the Soviet military becomes the strongest, most dominant military in the world in the early 1980s. I think you know, most uh, analysts and scholars would, would agree on that. And, and Reagan is very determined to reverse that. He wants to restore not just the American military's morale, but its strength, uh, its, its resourcing. Um, he had a line, uh, he said, the Soviets liked the arms race a lot better when they were the only ones running it. Um, and He wanted to get the United States back in it, but here's the key thing, uh, and this will lead directly to SDI. Um, Reagan, as the former governor of California for two terms, you know the birthplace of Silicon Valley, as a believer in free markets and innovation uh, and uh, private sector uh, entrepreneurship. He believed that the American economy, not just because of the resources and productivity it would uh, produce, but because of its technological innovation, could be a key to his defense buildup. So he didn't just want to throw more money at the Pentagon. He didn't just want to outspend the Soviets and outbuild them. He wanted to outsmart them. Right? And so this is why uh, his defense buildup invests in not just building, you know, as many tanks or more tanks as the Soviets have or as many or more missiles, but better ones, uh, qualitatively better ones, so that, you know, one of, you know, one of our tank-killing helicopters could take out ten of their tanks. Right? And so this is known as um, a competitive strategies framework where we use our advantages to exploit and weaken, uh, to neutralize their advantages and just exploit their weaknesses and disadvantages. And the the climax of all this is this Strategic Defense Initiative. As I mentioned earlier, when Reagan takes office, the Soviets have forty thousand nuclear warheads pointed at us. Most of them on their intercontinental ballistic missiles. These are you know truly nasty, awful, awful missiles. Any one of which can destroy you know uh, you know the entire metroplex here, um, and their whole arsenal could have wiped out all the United States. Reagan starts doing his own nuclear buildup on some fronts, but his real vision is how can we break out of this terrible stalemate where the Soviets have all their nukes pointed at our head, and we have our nukes pointed at their heads, and it was known as the balance of terror. It was known as mutual assured destruction. And the goal was, well, this will keep things stable because they won't launch at us because they know if they launch at us, we'll launch at them. But if you drill down, what's that really predicated? It means that America's security depends on our willingness to massacre 300 million Russians. Not just not just their military, but all their innocent people. And it also means that some of our stability depends on our willingness to allow the Russians to threaten our 300 million people, right? It's just gruesome. It's barbaric. And Reagan thought that this was just insane. And so this all comes together. So he has a vision. How can he transform this nuclear standoff in the Cold War so that instead of competing to see which side can kill more people, we compete to see which side can save more lives, so I can actually better defend its people. And so thus his vision for a missile shield, for using American technology, this strategic defense initiative, to build a multi-layered shield that would be able to shoot down, neutralize, take out any Soviet missiles that are that are launched at us. It's somewhat fantastical, you know, the technology did not exist in the early 1980s, but he knew that. But he also knew that any time the United States has encountered a technological or economic challenge, we've eventually been able to beat it, right? You know, we invented the automobile, we invented the airplane, we invented the telegraph, we invented the telephone, we invented the submarine. We've got a pretty good track record here, right? Um, And so let's put our resource behind that. He's, he's wildly criticized for this when it comes out. That's why Ted Kennedy calls it Star Wars. He doesn't mean that as a compliment. He'd say this is just pure science fiction. It will upset the Soviets. Uh, it, will, it, will, it will never, never work. You know, most expert opinion is against it. But Reagan is very committed to this, again, because of his willingness to try to rewrite the script in the Cold War and to completely change that balance. And so even though most experts don't think SDI will work, um, there's one key person who is convinced it will work, and that's Mikhail Gorbachev. Gorbachev is fascinated by American technology. He's very jealous of it. He wishes the Soviet system could produce that. And so every time he meets with Reagan, he is just begging Reagan, get rid of that system, stop it, cancel it. Because Gorbachev knows the Soviets' only advantage over us are their missiles. And if we build a system that can neutralize their missiles, they've they've, they've lost. And Reagan is determined to hold on to that system, not because he wants to be able to preemptively attack the Soviet Union, but because he wants to make these awful weapons obsolete. And and so throughout the, 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 the four years of his second term when he's negotiating, with Gorbachev, he holds very fast to the system, and, and it really does play a key role in the Soviets finally giving up and saying, okay, we can't win this arms race anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Dale, again, from the press standpoint, how are you presenting
1: SDI and, and,
0: and obviously at Reykjavik that was what caused it to, to split off and everybody would go away mad because Reagan would not turn loose of SDI as a bargaining chip. You know, I remember
2: <clears throat> flying home from Reykjavik after the second summit when the president would not give in on SDI, and the president really went there thinking we we're going to get a deal, and uh, and he was very very disappointed that he couldn't get a deal, and you know probably second guessing himself a little bit on the way home, uh, but it turned out to be exactly the right thing to do, and it's exactly what brought the Soviets to the table so we could get some some peace some more peaceful uh, negotiations going on, but it was a long trip home because everybody thought. We were very disappointed uh, that we thought we were going to make some some history there that day, and um, but Ronald Reagan, who had great instincts, knew it was the right thing to do. He stood firm by his convictions, and he got what he wanted eventually. So uh,
0: we may have been disappointed in the short term, but we were pretty happy in the long term. So let's close the program before we have time for a couple questions. Talking about okay, Reagan leaves office January 1989. We haven't quite won the Cold War. The, the, the Berlin Wall hasn't come down yet. But all the momentum is headed that way, and, and it all, of course, does. End of Cold War. Celebration. Today, Putin, Ukraine. How did we get from this you know, comment on whether it's from an American policy or whether it's just pure Putin, how we got from this joyous uh, resolution of the Cold War to, to, to where we are. Give us, give us your thoughts on that in a nutshell.
1: Oh boy, I think we need. Can we be here till dinner time? Okay, all right, so okay. I'll try to keep this brief. So, Hit yeah. the high points. Yeah, okay. First, just a general observation. Um, if you look at the successful ends of most conflicts the United States has been in over the last 125 years, end of World War One, where Germany and their aggression is defeated, end of World War Two, where Japan and, and Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan are defeated, end of the Cold War. Those are all great triumphs for the free world. They are, and they, they occur at great sacrifice uh, and devotion by the United States. But each of the ends of those conflicts contains within the seeds of the next one. And this is not to second guess or criticize our our presidents and leaders during all those. It's just kind of a fact of human nature, right? You know, the the world is a world of of you know fallen people and and sometimes bad governments and bad countries and uh, and you know continued malevolence even after after a good ending. And I think that's part of the story with the end of the Cold War. It's unambiguously a really good thing, right? You know, the end of this barbaric system of government, communism, which had caused the deaths of 100 million people over, over the 20th century. Um, truly ghastly, you know, much higher body count death toll than Nazi Germany. Uh, the expansion of, uh, of uh, democracy, of, of free markets. Uh, it, it's unambiguously a good thing. But it also has some of its downsides. And one of those is Russia, you know, the Soviet Union collapses. Uh, the Soviet Union. Remember, uh, if you look at a look at a go home tonight, or you know, pull up on uh, Google. Look at a map of the Soviet Union in 1988. Okay, and you will see that its borders include Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Kazakhstan, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, and Ukraine. By the way, okay, you see all that. All that was just part of the Soviet Union. That, that was the Soviet Empire. That's why it's called an empire. 18 countries. 18 countries, yeah, exactly. Spain in 11, 11 12 time zones. <coughs> they lose all that, and then they just become <coughs> Russian. Uh, you know, lose about half their territory, half their population, half their economic control. Now they needed to lose it. It was an empire, right? It was, you know, falling apart. The people in those other countries, the Ukrainians, wanted to be free in 1991, just as they still want to be free in 2023. Um, and then for the Russians themselves, instead of... Uh, uh, you know, kind of conceding their losses and trying to rebuild their own country, they just go through a really, you know, a lost decade of of corruption, of the rise of the oligarchs, of organized crime, of a failed leadership with Boris Yeltsin, and then this emergence of this new, you know, strongman dictator in Vladimir Putin. And they've never fully come to terms with the loss of that previous empire. They they still they still long for that. Uh, I don't have uh, a lot of agreement or patience with critiques one hears out there that it's the United States' fault that Russia has gone on the path it's done. Well, the United States. We expanded NATO. We did the Iraq war. Sure, the Russians didn't like some of those things. But American policy in the 1990s and early 2000s under under Bush, the first Bush under Clinton, under the second Bush that I worked for under Obama. Its policy, our policy across four presidencies, really into the Trump administration, was to embrace Russia, was to partner with Russia, bring Russia into the World Trade Organization, expand the G seven to the G eight to bring Russia in, even though they didn't really really qualify. Slash our nuclear arsenals from thirty thousand warheads down to fifteen hundred warheads, like we have today, as a goodwill gesture toward towards Russia. Deepen our trade ties with Russia. All, all of this, embrace Russia, make them a. And uh, and the Russians have, by and large, chosen to go in a different direction. I don't blame all the people for that, but certainly that's. That's what Putin's course has been. So at some point, you know, we can't blame America first for everything, right? I'm not saying that we our policies towards Russia have been flawless, but I, at the end of the day, other countries are going to make their own choices on what directions they, they want to go. Um, and Russia under Putin has just made an unfortunate choice that it wants to return to some perverse combination of its Soviet empire days and its 19th century czarist empire days. And that's what we're dealing with. Dale, I
0: wanna, why don't you make a comment on
2: that? I'll make, I'll make it brief. I have a much more, I have a much different, you're, you're talking about it from the political, uh, you know, socio-political standpoint. I think that there was nothing in place that would help the Soviet people who had been living with communism and been told what to do for 70 years. Uh, they, didn't, they couldn't even make choices about what they were getting at the grocery store, right? And now they're free to do whatever they didn't know how to deal with. So there's nothing there to teach them how to live in a democracy. And so with this vacuum that the crazy Yeltsin created and so forth, um, that led to, okay, uh, you know, we're not doing very well this way. Uh, let's go back to to a system that we understand and a life that we understand. And Putin seems like a strong leader to to, uh, to restore the,
0: the glory of, of Russia. Now, close. I, I distributed every table. If you haven't... Uh, and table five I've got your copies here so come out and get them but talk about what this letter is and why I thought it was so important for people to have an appreciation for it yeah um, when I was in the White House I was
2: assistant press secretary for domestic affairs and my counterpart was assistant secretary press secretary for foreign affairs he was on loan to us from the state department his name was Mike Guest very very smart guy very talented guy and um Again, I was going through my stuff, and I came upon this letter, which I'm so happy I kept. It was a letter, and you got to you got to see it says, "Dear Dale and Anne," <clears throat> and it's on mimeograph paper. There were no computers in those days, so you couldn't, you know, mail merge or do any of that kind of stuff. So, so he st- starts off, "Dear Dale," and Ann, apologies for sending such an impersonal greeting. He was sending it to a few of his friends, but the point being, <clears throat> he had gone back to Moscow to be an American, to a Soviet specialist in Moscow. During 1988, and this letter, and I hope you'll take <clears throat> a few minutes to read it, is just a beautiful, beautifully written um, letter, but it really talks about a moment in time, what was happening in the Soviet Union in those days, at, in 1988, as all this was happening. And the, the, the ironies of, uh, I'll just give you one, um, this is a culture that has produced miniature Fabergé eggs and monolithic Stalinesque architecture. Fanciful wood carvings around on daca windows and hammers and sickles on the Bolshoi theater curtains. And delicate ballerinas dancing in front of goose-stepping soldiers on parade. So that's the kind of thing. He's showing this and this, and he's trying to make sense of it all for, for Anne and me so that we understand what's happening in the Soviet Union. So Talmadge asked if we could share this with you so you can have a copy of this and see what really was happening at that moment in time. During this really historic
0: moment in American history, now, I, I want to respect everybody's schedule. It's, it's one o'clock. Will's going to be here a little while. If you have questions, come, come ask them. But we really, I don't want to. But I do want to say our next event,
2: uh,
0: and it follows this very nicely. Monday, April seventeenth, and all of you will get an e invite. Rest assured. Philip Taubman is a professor at Stanford. Uh, He's written a new book on George Shultz. What James Baker was to Reagan's (coughs) first term, George Shultz was to his second term in terms of really the key person as far as executing this foreign policy. Uh, And so this is a biography of George Shultz that just came out. It's endorsed by three people on the back of the dust jacket. Condi Rice, James Baker, and Bob Woodward. (laughs) So I hope that you all will return. And I'll tell you right now, we couldn't get this room for the next one, But the Park City Club serves lunch on the first floor of the building in a nice room, and the food will be great, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, I hope you'll come and hear that as kind of a follow-up. But uh, thanks to Will Andale for such a fabulous program. After interviewing Will Inboden about his fantastic new biography on Ronald Reagan, and his foreign policy, I have a new and much deeper appreciation for what a great president Reagan was. Also, to hear Dale Petrosky talk about the personal side of Reagan made me like him even more as a human being. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford Bowen McKinley & Norton. Thanks for listening.